0: Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Those are verses 21 to 24 of Psalm 31, which is a psalm appointed for today, Friday, September the 3rd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. It's uh, um, we're, we're sort of finishing up the life of Solomon, which we've only looked at really for about a week. Um, we're finishing up his story today in, in 1 Kings 11, verses 26 to 43. You remember yesterday we had talked about the Lord's um, punishment on Solomon for his transgression of, of having all these foreign wives and going after their gods. Um, and so then we've got that, and then we've got a continuation in, in the um, epistle of James, chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. And then the gospel is in the gospel of Mark. Chapter 15, verses 22 to 32. Um, so here we're, we're getting to the end of the story of Solomon. And, and what begun so gloriously ends in something awful. Um, and so here we've got Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow. So his, his father had died by the point in time when we pick up this story of Jeroboam uh, also lifted up his hand against the king, and this was the reason that he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the millow, and we heard about that yesterday. It's the sort of the fortification on the wall, and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. So that it, what he's saying is, is that now it's a fortified city and it's secure from outside attack. That that's important. It, it's secure from outside attack, but Solomon's sin made a different possibility open, and that's an attack from within. So the man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave the charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And, and remember, the forced labor had to do with building public works projects, essentially, um, and so that's what he's done. And and as I said, it, it opens Solomon's inattention to detail, and, and his uh, love for all these foreign wives and everything else made him vulnerable on the inside because he failed to attend to the most important thing he he had it too good in so many ways so uh, he he saw that Jeroboam was a very talented guy and so he said all right you're in charge of this forced labor for these public works projects and at the time Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, and a prophet named Ahijah the Shilonite found him out on the road. And so Ahijah dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. He laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, "'Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes.'" But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. The missing tribe here are, are the tribe, half tribes that are on the other side of the Jordan. That's the reason there's 11 mentioned here. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they've not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I won't take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I'll make him ruler all the days of his life, for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. And this is how much the Lord loved David, is that 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 he had made a promise to David and he intended to keep it as David had kept his promise to the Lord. He said, but I'll take the kingdom out of his son's hand, Solomon's hand, and give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I'll give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I've chosen to put my name. So you can see that ultimately... The city where God puts his name is the important place. And so you can you can see the seeds of everything will eventually come back to Jerusalem. So the, the, he's not making a covenant here to do this forever. What but he's saying is, is that ultimately I've got a promise that I made to David, and that promise will be kept because God won't violate that. And he says, I'll take you, and you'll reign over all your soul desires, and you'll be king over Israel. And if you'll listen to all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I'll be with you and build you a sure house, as I built for David. And I'll give Israel to you, and I'll afflict the offspring of David because of this, and again, but not forever." He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a covenant-making God. He's a covenant-keeping God. Um, No matter what, he's going to keep this promise to David. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam. How he found out about this, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt, so Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon, and then now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the books of the Acts of Solomon, which we don't have? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So we see here at the end of Solomon's life, because of his sin, because of his turning away from from following the Lord, the, the punishment is that it's going to be taken away from him. That he, that his son will not have the same kingdom that he did. So the splendor of the United Kingdom lasted only during the, the reign of Solomon. And it's a sad, sad thing to see that, that the seeds of so much greatness were there. And yet at the end of it it, it's, it, it comes to this where his son's only going to preside over one of the tribes, and that'll be the tribe of Judah. In this gospel lesson, you see some of the same kinds of things actually happening here, you see the rejection. But you see one who perseveres to the end and does it perfectly. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. What it would do, that wine mixed with myrrh would dull the senses. And so the crucifixion was so painful that they offered him essentially something to, to help him bear that pain. But the problem is, is that it also would have Um, rendered him less than fully intellectually capable during that time. It'd be like taking some strong narcotic for pain or something like that. So Jesus didn't take it because he needed to have control of all his faculties in order to finish this right. So they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And that's the part that reminds me of what Ahijah did with um, Jeroboam in, in tearing his own garment and, and, and dividing it into pieces and saying, all right, you take the ones you want. So they do the same thing here. They, they, that was the right of the soldiers to be able to, to, to get um, loot, essentially, from the one who was crucified. And it was the third hour. So it's 9 o'clock in the morning. So a lot happened, obviously, between probably 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. So we're, we're talking about a lot that's happened early in the morning. And so at nine o'clock in the morning, they take him out and they crucify him. And the inscription on the charge against him read the king of the Jews, which is true. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. if you've got the power to tear down the temple, it took about 80-some-odd thousand people to build, and you're going to tear it down, and you're going to rebuild it in three days. Well, if you've got the power to do that, then you ought to have the power to come down from that cross, too. And he did. He had the power to do exactly that. But the, but the thing that we can see in this is mercy triumphs judgment. Just like we read in the epistle yesterday from James, mercy triumphed judgment. It was the love of God that constrained him to stay on that cross cross in spite of all that he suffered there. The love of God triumphed. Because what he could have done is come down from that cross and that would have unleashed judgment on the world. Because sin would have been unatoned for and, and judgment would have fallen on the entire earth and everything could have ended there but because Jesus persevered through all of this mercy became the predominant characteristic of God it was already and I don't mean to say, to suggest that it wasn't but what i'm saying is is that 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 judgment could have been unleashed but the love of God triumphed over that and mercy was given to humanity because Jesus persevered on that cross and, and so mercy is far greater than the transgression. The, the love of God prevailed. Jesus stayed there in love. He, he had to have his faculties. So he turned that down in order that he could be in control, fully in control. And so while he's being derided by these passersby, you can just imagine the inner thought process that's going on, and, and, but you can only imagine it in light of the resurrection. If he's not resurrected from the dead, then you can't imagine the pain and the suffering that goes on here. He could have said, you don't want me to come down from this cross. It would be the worst thing in the world for you if I came down from this cross. And then the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders come and mock him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. What he's actually doing is saving humanity. He's saving He's no, he has no need to save himself. He's going to be resurrected. He, he, he needed no salvation at all. He is your salvation. But only if he persists and perseveres to the end. And then they say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Well, if you think coming down from the cross was something to see that would cause you to believe, wait three days. Wait three days. But they don't believe. They don't believe. They wanted to see, but he didn't reveal himself to them. He revealed himself to his disciples, those who had believed before. They're the ones who got to see the glorious resurrection and, and the appearances for the next 40 days. And then those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We're told, in, in, obviously, in, in another gospel that one of those believed and we believe that they did. I, I think something happened there on the cross. I don't think these two things are in conflict with one another. I think that we're, we just are told the story of the other one essentially changing his mind as he sees Jesus suffering there. And he sees and has the greatest faith, I think you'll see displayed anywhere in the, in the Gospels, actually, because this guy comes to faith and says, Remember me today when you come into your kingdom well, I'm not coming into a kingdom, and that dude's not coming into a kingdom. But something he sees in Jesus towards the end causes him to believe that. In the same way that the centurion comes to believe that truly this is the Son of God, I believe something this guy sees, and I believe it's, you know, obviously it's a work of the Holy Spirit to reveal it to him. But, but to say, I, I believe you're coming into your kingdom today is one of the most extraordinary statements you could ever even begin to imagine somebody would make in that situation. but the love of God is on display here, and the the power of Jesus not to do what they want him to do, what he's fully capable of, in obedience to the Father's will, is the greatest thing you'll ever see. In this uh, epistle lesson today from James, he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there, and make a trade, and make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring what's your life you're a mist that appears for a little time then vanishes instead you ought to say if the lord wills we'll do this and that doesn't mean he's saying you doesn't mean don't make a plan what he what he's saying though is you don't have control of your life and so you can't say i'm going to do this and and I, you know i found out that very thing over these last four months you know i i came where I am right now recording this, and and I had planned to do some recording that morning and do a little work too, and then Suzanne showed up and said, um, I need your help, I don't know what to do, and then everything changed, and and nothing is the same since then, I mean nothing, Um, in a glorious way, ultimately. But certainly that moment, we didn't have any idea, but what it showed me is that I'm not in control. I can make plans, but what I have to do is, is to submit those to him and to put those under his sovereignty and say, if this is what he wants, this is what we'll do. It doesn't mean you should make a plan. It just means you need to hold that plan lightly. He said, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's a sin so we we're called to live under the sovereignty of God not to to be arrogant and to hold on to our plans and demand that those things be done no we we're called to submit everything to him and to to live humbly and walk humbly before our God he says come now you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted your garments are moth-eaten. Gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You're not supposed to withhold the wages of a man. They were paid daily. That's the reason a denarius was a daily wage, is because that you were paid daily. So you didn't have to you didn't hold the money back and then say, Okay, I'll give it to you in two weeks or whatever. It was no you got paid on a daily basis for the labor that you put forth. And it's largely based on the concept of I have no idea what tomorrow will bring. I know we've reached safely the end of this day. So I'm going to go ahead and pay you now. And what he's saying is they're holding it back as though saying, "Well, oh, the job's not done yet. So you can't have the money. And they're causing poverty by doing this. And he says, you kept it back by fraud. In other words, they don't intend to give it to them. They intend to cheat them out of the money. And, and he says that those wages are crying out against you, That which is a statement and it's a quote from it, – a it's sort of a twisted sort of a quote, let's say, from um, – Genesis 4. Remember, Abel's blood cried out for justice. And so that's what, what James is saying here is the wages of the laborers, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, there's going to be judgment and recompense against you who have done these kinds of things. He's speaking just like the prophets did in the Old Testament. He's accusing them of the same kinds of things. There's no different Uh, between what what James is saying here and and what so many of the prophets said about justice and mercy, and and that's all he's calling for. He says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. In other words, they've turned the other cheek. They've done the things that Jesus said to do, and you think you've gotten away with it. That, that person who doesn't resist you is also the one who has left vengeance to God, which is a righteous person who does that rather than taking out that vengeance himself. And it's what Jesus does at the crucifixion by keeping silent. Is that he leaves all of that to God because of his love for God and, and his trust. And it's a beautiful thing, and I wish that Solomon had, had finished better than he did. I wish that Solomon had finished well. And I'm hoping (laughs) that Ecclesiastes is the statement that he makes in submission to God, saying, I I should have kept my eye on the ball, but I didn't. And I regret that. That's the way that I read the book of Ecclesiastes, um, is that after he has accepted God's judgment on his failures and on his sins, and he's reaching out and trying to say, don't make the same mistakes that I did because I've made mistakes and they were costly in the end. But, but I just see the love of God and the mercy of God in that story as well, because he didn't take everything away from him. He didn't because of David, because of his son David. And Jesus is the perfect David, the one without sin.